midway through this sermon, my son Elliot, who is nine, interrupted me to correct me on a name swap that I had done between Ahab and Naboth. And so as you listen, um, just recognize that I messed those two things up. He's going to correct me at about the 16-minute mark. Uh, I wanted to bury this deep and pretend as if it never happened. Uh, his correction was right and, and funny, but I don't know that I ever quite recovered. However, uh, through the requests that I've received to hear the message again, and through the recommendation of a friend, I'm posting the audio and asking that you listen very graciously, even more graciously than usual. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope that you are encouraged. History is full of moments that leave us numb and filled with questions. The Holocaust, 9-11, the Covenant School shooting of earlier this year. Tragedies such as these leave us with questions. How long, O Lord? How long will you allow evil to be perpetuated? How long until justice rolls down like waters? We come to 1 Kings in chapter 21 in a story which arouses such questions within us. And the Lord provides comfort encouragement through the voice of Elijah. The main idea of this chapter is this. God will execute his holy justice and vindicate his holy people. God sees, God knows, and God will act. Outline is there before you. We'll consider Ahab, Elijah, and the Lord together this morning. And the sections will get progressively shorter for those of you who are looking at your watches. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Speak, O Lord, your people listen. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 21, starting with verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Here we find Ahab retreating to his summer palace, which seems to have become his primary residence. If you remember last week, there were those military victories that he enjoyed, and then he refused to execute the Lord's enemy, Ben-Hadad, and instead called him brother 
and allowed him to go away untouched. A prophet came and confronted him and told him that he had let the Lord's enemy go at the expense of his own life. And so the king of Israel, Ahab, went to his house vexed and sullen. So it seems as if maybe Ahab is looking to lift his spirits up, and he thinks to himself, you know what would be great for the king who has everything in the world? A vegetable garden. Where could I put that vegetable garden, he thinks to himself. I need some leeks and onions, cucumbers. Ah, the vineyard of Naboth. I I will go and I'll make him an offer, and he won't refuse me. I'm the king after all. And so Ahab comes to Naboth and says, let me have your vineyard for my garden. It's right next to the palace, and what I'll give you, I'll give you a better vineyard if you're into the vineyard life, or I'll give you money for it. But Naboth, well, he throws a kink into the plan of Ahab. He tells him no. Why does he do that? Is it just because he's a crotchety old man? I'm not going to sell my property to you. Is he trying to stick it to the man? Well, look at his response. Look at how he refuses in verse 3. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You see, Naboth's land... Well, it's not just his land, it's promised land. And it's governed by the laws of God. He may not sell this land. It was given to him by God. He is to keep it and to work it. It is his inheritance and the inheritance of his fathers before him. Of course, the law makes provisions for those who own the land to sell, I'll put that in quotes, it's more of a lease because the land comes back to them in the Jubilee. If they're in extreme poverty or some other emergency circumstance, there's provisions for them to lease out their land to someone else. But Naboth, he doesn't qualify there. He's not in poverty. And therefore, there is no reason for him to sell his land. Naboth chooses to be obedient to the word of God rather than accommodating to the king. That's sort of a big deal. I mean, there is a lot to be gained from being Ahab's friend. If you think about it from Naboth's perspective, I mean, this is a gift horse. I could get a better vineyard? That could be very lucrative. Maybe even if he's good at negotiations, he could talk Ahab into a higher price than the land is worth, make himself very wealthy. Maybe even find a place in Ahab's administration. He could have wealth and prestige and a little bit of power and position. Though he has the world at his fingertips, Naboth refuses to take hold of it. He will not take hold of material gain at the expense of his soul. 
He sets such a great example for all the faithful who have heard those words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I don't know if Naboth did the calculus and realized that his obedience was going to cost him his life, but certainly he understood that to stand opposed to the king's desire to turn down the king's deal was going to cost him something. It was going to cost him something of his reputation, something perhaps of his wealth, and it ended up costing him, as we'll see, his very life. I wonder, friends, Do you approach obedience to God and your relationship with the world the way Naboth does? I hope so. I hope that you would be more willing to die than to disobey the word of the Lord. I hope that you would rather be obedient to the voice of the Lord Jesus than to be extremely wealthy or to have a position that brings you a great reputation. Pray that you would rather be loyal to Jesus than keep your job. Does that describe your Commitment to Christ? Surely, Naboth lost his life, but words of Christ are true. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, the ground will eventually drink up Naboth's blood, but Naboth's God raises the dead. He will be raised to life. He will be vindicated. Friends, loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, even at the expense of your life now, will bring to you all kinds of blessings in the life that is to come, in the resurrection that is to come. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father. He is going to make all things well. Do you value your life more than loyalty to Jesus? Is Christ your Lord and your very life? Naboth tells Ahab, no, Verse 4, Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab lay down on his bed and turned away his face 
and would eat no food. We already knew that Ahab was a weak jellyfish of a man, and so now we see that he is also childish. He goes home, and he's just whining and laying on his bed, and he won't eat. He, he's got all, I mean, he's a king. He's got all this wealth. He's got all these things, and yet he is so covetous for this garden. This one thing that he can't have consumes him. Beware, my friends. Covetousness will consume you. And even though we live at a time in history and in a place where we are more wealthy than most everyone who has ever come before us, we still find ourselves wanting the next new thing. I've got this, but oh, I would really like to have that. I renovated this room, but now I need to renovate that room. We just got this car a few years ago, but now I have to have the new one. Got to get the new phone. I've got to have this and that. If I don't have it, then I might as well just lay in bed all day. Woe is me. Covetousness can consume us. Idols so easily creep into our hearts unnoticed, don't they? We must stand guard against them. We must weed idols out of our hearts so that we are fruitful for Christ, so that we continue to grow in our affections for Christ. Ahab cannot bear up under Naboth's no. It's interesting, too, I thought of this this week. If ever you want to see who someone is, they will show you when they don't get what they want. Have you ever thought about that? If you want to know how mature someone is, what they're really like, watch how they react when they don't get what they want out of life. Because they'll show you. You wonder, how do you respond when you don't get what you want? You get grumpy or vexed and sullen and feel sorry for yourself? Even, even when, when suffering comes, maybe especially when suffering comes, how do you respond? Dejected? Sin by being angry at God? Or do you count it all joy? This is an interesting question to ponder this afternoon, but Ahab shows us exactly who he is. He is a weak worm of a man, consumed by covetousness, concerned with all the passing things of this world, and ignorant to the eternal realities that await him. Ahab is sulking, we read in verse 5, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. 
is interesting here. She comforts Naboth. She tells him to arise and eat. And that should sound a little familiar to us. If you just look back in chapter 19, you'll remember that Elijah, when he is on the run from Jezebel, fleeing for his life, he lays down beneath that broom tree. He's disappointed in his ministry. He thinks he's a failure. And what happens in his time of need? Now, the Lord comes to him. He says the exact same thing. He says, arise and eat. And Elijah listens to the voice of the Lord. And he, he goes on to Mount Horeb, Mount Covenant, Mount Sinai. Now here, I think we're supposed to see the contrast. Naboth, in his time of need, well, he hears the voice of his wife. and He will obey her words. There is, throughout this passage, that contrast and also shades of Genesis 3, where you have the first Adam ignoring the word of the Lord, enticed to sin by the voice of his wife, standing passively by while great sin is committed about a garden. Naboth is like Adam, he's passive, abdicating his authority as king, listens to the voice of the serpent as it comes from the mouth of his wife. He is one who is not concerned about listening to the voice of the Lord. No. Ahab, you guys will have to be with me there. Thanks for the correction, Elliot, mid-sermon. They were doing the math. Ahab is listening to the voice of his wife. He's disobeying the voice of the Lord. He's not concerned with God's word. We see that already at the front end of the chapter because he wants to take the promised land, Naboth's vineyard, and turn it into a vegetable garden. And that might not strike you right away, unless you know that vegetables are the devil's food, right? Nobody likes vegetables. It is, it is sort of a stand-in, though, for the devil's food here. There's one other place in the Bible where a vegetable garden is mentioned, and it comes to us in Deuteronomy 11. Listen. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. You see the contrast here. When they're in Egypt, they eat vegetables. There's a vegetable garden. A vegetable garden here is a stand-in. It is a symbol of Egypt and the oppression that people experienced there. And wouldn't you know it, what is Israel often depicted as throughout the Bible? A vine or a vineyard? So what does Naboth want to do? Well, he wants to replace the vineyard of Israel 
with the vegetable garden of Egypt. He's turning the people, did I say Naboth again? Is that why y'all are laughing at me? Did I get them mixed up? I'm mixing these names all up. Ahab is the one that's doing this, all right? You guys figure it out. You, you know, Ahab is the bad guy. Naboth is the good guy. I'm going to try to get it straight. Ahab wants to turn Israel towards these other gods and away from Yahweh. That's why he set up the Baal worship. He married Jezebel. Now he's after his vegetable garden. This is consistent with his re-canonization program. Remember, he commissioned the rebuilding of the town of Jericho. It's almost as if the conquest is being reversed. The people of God are becoming just like the people of the land. You even have some of that same language of the conquest later on. You'll see Jezebel will tell Naboth to take possession. Arise, take possession. As if he's taking away, Ahab, taking away the promised land from God's people. Now I am really distracting myself. Ahab wants to make Israel like Egypt. He is not concerned with the things of God. And he listens to the voice of his wife. I do wonder, do you think all authority is bad. Certainly here, and, and as the story progresses, we will see Ahab misuse his authority. He, he misuses it in two ways. He leaves it unused so that Jezebel can pick it up, and he abuses it by using it to get exactly what he wants. The result is gruesome. It's death. I think we grow up in our country, being skeptical of any and every authority. But the Bible teaches us that authority is a good thing that God has embedded into humanity. Listen to the way David speaks of authority rightly used in 2 Samuel chapter 23. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Authority, well used, good authority, blesses those who are under it. Authority exists for the building up of people and of the world and to honor the Lord our God. It doesn't exist for destruction or for curse. Yet we, we do know that when authority is wrongly used, when one rules unjustly over men, ruling without the fear of God, he falls upon them like darkness. It's like a tornado that rips even the most deeply rooted tree from the ground. Such is the authority employed by Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel takes up his abdicated authority and uses it to tear apart Naboth so that Ahab might have his vineyard. Friends, if you have authority, 
there are two ways that you can misuse it. One way is by not using it properly, not using it for the building up of others. And the other way is by abusing it, by lording it over others to get exactly what you want. Most everyone at some point in life will have some semblance of authority. How are you using yours? When pastors fail to preach the whole counsel of God faithfully, the flock of God suffers. When husbands fail to lead their wives and their families, their families suffer. When parents fail to teach their children the nurture and admonition of the Lord, their children suffer. When political leaders or business leaders or any kind of leader refuses to use their authority and make decisions for the good of their business, the good of their people, the whole business, the whole people suffer. Friends, authority and power are not bad things in and of themselves. They are good gifts from God that are to be stewarded rightly. It's a wrong thing to rebel against any and every authority. It is a wrong thing to not use your authority. It is a wrong thing to abuse your authority so that you might take hold of whatever you want. How are you relating to authority this morning? How are you using the authority you have? Are you blessing those under your care or are you bringing them harm by way of abdication or by abuse? Ahab's authority will be abused by Jezebel. We see in verse 8, her plan hatches. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of this city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take 
possession of it. Jezebel picks up Ahab's abdicated authority and uses it to kill Naboth. Two wicked men bear false testimony against him. They say that he's blasphemed God, the penalty for which is capital. And so he is buried beneath stones. Later on, we learn in 2 Kings that not only is Naboth killed, but all of his sons are eliminated also. Who's going to lay claim to the land? But King Ahab. He will go and take possession. Notice too, no one stops Jezebel. You see in verse 11, the men of the city, elders and leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. No one in this story tells Jezebel no. Not her husband and king, not the leaders of the city, not the elders of the city, no one. No one tells her no. wonder, friends, would you tell Jezebel no? I think sometimes it's easy to look back across the landscape of history and think, if I had been there, I would have done the right thing. I would have stood for justice. I never would have compromised on anything like all of those terrible, terrible people who ever existed before me. I would have been righteous. Friends, I just don't think that's true. There's a reason when you look at that famous picture of Tiananmen Square, and there are tanks coming down the road. There's just one man standing by himself. There are always plenty of compromisers and cowards. There are few who are courageous. Who are courageous enough to stand up for what is right and to actually pursue justice. There are very few who will tell Jezebel no. And my hope and my prayer is that we would be among them that we would be committed to saying no to the world when it calls us to compromise our obedience to Christ, that we would say no when we see things that are wrong being promoted as if they are right. My hope is that we would be willing to stand like tank man before all the military might in the world. We would be unbendable. Are you the kind of person who's willing to tell Jezebel no? No one would tell her no. And as a result, Naboth is stoned. And so we have those questions aroused within us. How long, O Lord? How could you let this happen? And then, as if out of nowhere, Elijah shows up again. Now, I've always cast Elijah in the light of a wrestler from WWE. It's like the lights go down, and here he's going to show up. His entrance music is going to play. 
He's like the undertaker that bell tolls back in the day, you know. Dong, dong, and then like Elijah's sitting up in the casket, like, Elijah is back. Here he comes out of nowhere. And we read in verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he is gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus saith the Lord. Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus saith the Lord. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, Shall dogs lick your own blood? Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered him, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger of which, to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Elijah shows up and he lets us know that even though it seems for all the world that Ahab and Jezebel are enjoying a victory, their victory will be short-lived. God sees the injustice. God knows and God will act. God's already pronounced one curse against Ahab. This is the second and there will be a third Friends, we must never confuse the delay of God's judgment for the cancellation of God's judgment. Sometimes we can be like Ahab and Jezebel. We think all things are well. No one knows about this sin. I got away with it. But the Lord knows. He knows all sin. And he will act. No sin goes unpunished. If you are a Christian, your sins have been punished in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ, punishment remains. God will judge sin. And he's, he's going to eliminate Ahab's entire house. You see, I'm going to cut off from Ahab every male. The word there, if you translate it literally, is the old KJV, everyone who pisseth against the wall, right? And then you look back at Jeroboam's house, and you'll remember that Jeroboam's house was going to be burned up like dung. And so we have that same, you know, very crude picture. Jeroboam's house stank. Basha's house was also polluted by sin and waste. And the only remedy was to burn both houses up. The same fate is going to befall Ahab and his house. His dynasty will be wiped out. There will be none left. His sin will be judged in this life and in the life to come. Friends, this 
this comes as a great comfort to us, especially if you have ever suffered injustice. God is not going to leave any wrong unrighted. He deals with sin. Think of how Paul says it in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. God sees injustice. God knows about it, and God is going to deal with it. Naboth's death did not surprise the Lord. He saw. He saw Naboth be testified against falsely by wicked men. He saw the stones fall upon his broken body. Saw as Naboth's blood sprinkled the ground. Naboth was a righteous man. He trusted the Lord. How could could he die? Makes us think of another righteous man who was testified against falsely by two worthless men whom the Lord watched die on a cross. Father sent the Son, the innocent one, the truly righteous one, to die. How could this righteous man's blood be spilled? He trusted God. God is always up to more than we can see. He's always doing good. Love that phrase from Joseph's life when his brothers are saying, hey, we sold you into slavery. It was terrible of us. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil. And they did mean it for evil. And it was evil. He says, but God meant that same event for good. I don't know all the ways that God has used Naboth's story for good. I'm sure there are quite a few. I do know how he used the death of Jesus for good. It was through Jesus' unjust condemnation that you and I are able to call God Father and to know him as Father rather than as Judge. 
because God ordained that Jesus' death on the cross would be a substitutionary death, that he would be as a sacrifice. He would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Christ, God the Father punished every sin of every one of his people. Jesus shed his blood so that you and I don't have to shed our blood. He died so that we might live. The punishment that brings you and I peace, church, fell upon Christ. God used his death for good. And it, it's not as if injustice is allowed to reign. Jesus died at the right time for the ungodly so that we might be given the newness of life, so that we might be made holy when we turn from our sins and trust in him. And Jesus Christ is returning to punish all evil, to end all evil, to vindicate himself as God and King. Understand that all sin has been or will be punished. If you are in Christ, your sins have been punished on Good Friday. If you are still in rebellion against Christ, if you live your life the way that you want in disobedience to God's word, if you do not know God, if you do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is judgment waiting for you on that day when he returns to inflict vengeance on all those who do not know God and who do not, do not obey the gospel. Indeed, he will bring to you eternal destruction. Friends, my non-Christian friends, I implore you to trust Christ. God is just. He will deal with sin. He will deal with your sin. You can have your sin forgiven. If you will put your faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, your judgment day gets moved from that day put in the past on Good Friday. That's very good news. Our God is just and he is merciful. We see his justice and mercy meet and kiss at the cross of Christ. He punishes sin and he saves sinners. He's mighty to save. He's good at it. God loves to show mercy. We see that in this last paragraph. Listen to this description of Ahab in verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. 
put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This paragraph it shocks us, and it should also thrill us. Ahab's repentance here, it's, it's real, but it's not lasting. We would consider it more temporary remorse. But look at how God responds to just this slight tilting of Ahab's heart into the Lord's direction. One commentator says, I don't mean it irreverently, but it is as if the Almighty nudges Elijah in the ribs and exclaims, Do you see that? You look at verse 25. There's none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. And yet, Ahab shows the slightest bit of humility before the Lord. And it's as if God is jumping ready to show him mercy and grace and kindness. It makes us wonder, but what if Ahab would have just gone all in on obedience to the Lord? What if he would have turned his whole life around and remained humble? I mean, he gets haughty again right in the next chapter. But, but what if he would have repented and trusted the word of God? He would have been forgiven. There are two kings who repent in first and second kings. Ahab here and his repentance is partial, not lasting. And Josiah, who is considered the best king. You see the, the best king and the worst king. And in both cases, you see God standing there ready to exercise mercy. You see the point? God has enough mercy to spend it on the worst of the worst, and even the best of the best. We all need God's mercy and grace. He is rich in mercy, and he is a big spender. He can forgive any who come to Christ in repentant faith, any who become poor in spirit and come before the Lord and say, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross of Christ I cling can be forgiven. We can't pay for our own sins. We can never do enough good things to make ourselves right with God, but the blood of Christ can make us right. All who put their faith in Christ, everyone who says, I'm going to live in loyalty to King Jesus, I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him, everyone who loses his life will find it in Christ. Even us. God is excited to have mercy. My non-Christian friends, you can be forgiven. Trust Christ. Church, let us rejoice that we have received the mercy of Christ. That we have been adopted into the family of God. 
Let us, when we see injustice around us, not be crippled by it, though we should mourn it, but let us look to the victory that is to come. God keeps his promises. God will execute his holy justice and vindicate his holy people. Let us give him praise. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we have had to hear it preached, albeit a little bumbling this morning. We thank you that you're faithful to to use it still. We ask that you would shape us by your word. You would help us to delight in your mercy as well as in your justice. We ask that you would give to each of us real and lasting repentance. We ask that you would draw those who don't know you to your son, Jesus. We ask for those of us who do know you that you would keep us in your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your justice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.